All right, well, um, slightly shorter time today for working through our content, but uh, we'll do what we can. Uh, today's topic is, is definitely a, um, not exactly a, a fun one. I'm talking about church discipline, which just um, reminds us of even after we're saved, um, there's still struggles with sin, right? Um, and there is the reality that... Um, you know, when we think about who's the member of a church and who's actually a Christian, those unfortunately are not two circles that immediately overlap, that completely overlap, right? There are definitely true believers who um, are not yet members of, of a church. And this is an important follow-up from last time. I, I think I may not have been, well, I know that I wasn't as uh, clear a communicator as I should have been. Uh, when it comes to talking about people who profess to be faithful, who profess faith in Christ, but are not yet members. One of the things I said last time was we can't, as a church, recognize them as Christians in the formal sense of allowing them to take the Lord's Supper. And yet what I want to really encourage you on is, um, you know, if somebody who's professing faith in Christ and then say they're attending a church that doesn't even do membership, right, um, I think our attitude towards that person should be one of grace and of love. Um, we certainly shouldn't be like saying, I question your salvation because you're not a member of a church, right? Um, in the, that situation, we really want to be giving them grace and um, believing the best and understanding that part of what they're dealing with is their church not understanding the biblical teaching about membership. What are you going to do, right? Um, at the same time, um, membership does matter. And part of why it matters is by making a clear distinction between the church and the world. And that's um, connected to what we're talking about today, which is church discipline. Um, talked last time about how do you add members to the roles? What, what is needed for um, being added to the roles of the church? What, what, are, what are the elders of the church looking for when somebody, um, for someone to be added to the roles of the church? What is the key criterion? Credible profession of faith, right? So someone who professes faith in Christ and that profession is, is credible. They, they have a clear understanding of the gospel. Doesn't mean they agree with everything that the church teaches and that that's backed up by evidence of love for Christ and a desire to serve him, um, a sense in which they've really devoted their life to him. So our hope is that when someone is giving that credible profession of faith and received into membership, that they would then retain their membership in the visible church until they die. And at that point, you are removed from the roles of the church militant, and you become a member of the church, not victorious, because we're already the church victorious. Um, I prefer not that, but the church at rest, right? Um, the church at rest is the church in heaven. And of course, um, while we're here on earth and members of the church militant, um, our membership can transfer between local churches for lots of good reasons, right? You, you move, um, you get married, and um, you know, your spouse is uh, part of this other church in your area where you're going now instead of where you used to go. That's fine. But unfortunately, there are also times when the church must remove those who prove to be false in their profession 
of faith. And remember, we talked, um, we were talking about the marks of the church. This is one of the marks of the true church. How do you know a real, uh, how do you know a, a church is a real church? Well, does it practice church discipline? Does it actually require people to not just say they're Christians, but actually live the Christian life in the sense of believing what God has said um, and, and seeking to obey him? So how does church discipline work? Well, the very first thing I want to say is that I hope you get from this discussion today a bigger picture of church discipline, that church discipline is not just excommunication. That's like the last most extreme step of church discipline. Actually, church discipline happens every single time you open your Bible, every single time the Bible is preached and taught. What's happening? We're being confronted with things that we haven't fully understood, haven't, aren't fully living, right? And how does like discipline happen, say, in um, a Christian home with parents and children? Well, it starts with, hey, don't do that, right? That's a form of discipline, right? It's a correction, verbal correction, right? Um, you know, consequences can escalate from there, right? But it begins with simple reproof. And so 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that reproof, that correction, is church discipline. It's the church saying, here's the whole gamut of what it means to be holy, as God is holy. Here's, here's what all, you know, the, preaching the whole counsel of God, right? And now, what is going to be your response to the word? Will you repent? and believe more deeply in Jesus, or will you persis persist in sin? And Hebrews 12, 11 shows us, again, this is like the norm. This is not just sort of like, church discipline isn't for like only a couple Christians who really are unrepentant. No, this is the norm for a child of God. All, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And actually, um, I wanted to quote the the verse before that, um, Hebrews, uh, earlier in Hebrews 12, it talks about, have you forgotten the discipline? Um, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Uh, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. That's what I was trying to point out here. So this is for everybody. And even think of the word in English, disciple. Obviously, it's related to the word discipline, right? Um, a disciple, one way we could define it, is someone who is corrected by teaching, someone who's corrected by the Father in his teaching, right? So whenever you're hearing the Word of God, and the Word of God is reproving you and correcting you, you are under discipline, the loving discipline of the Father, right? And the question is, what will you do with it? Will you take every sin seriously? Every sin should be taken seriously. Just like any cancer cell can grow into this terrible metastasized thing that just is going to destroy your body, so every little sin can become this horrible growing stage four spiritual cancer, 
that can destroy us. The wages of sin is death. So we're not going to be like, well, you know, there's the hideous, awful sins. I don't do that stuff. And then there's the polite, acceptable sins. No, <laughs> right? Every sin is important. Every sin is something that we need to deal with seriously. And we just need to understand that this discipline is something that happens in the formal teaching of the word and also in the informal way where other Christians, just like in a body, um, you know, there, there, there are um, good cells that work um, to attack and get rid of the bad stuff, right? And they're all kind of swirling around, interacting with each other. So also, in the church, we should have a culture of encouraging each other, including encouraging one another by reproving one another, right? And again, this is not saying, um, I'm here telling you, uh, go and like, you know, sharply <laughs> tell, tell people that, hey, you're sinning, that's bad, you know, <laughs> right? But it, it should be done in love, Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love. But it also should be something that's just a culturally acceptable thing. And I just want to ask you, if someone in this church say one of your peers were to come to you and say, hey, like, I'm really concerned, like, you just really seem to be struggling with this. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but, like, I'm really concerned for you. Um, is everything okay in your walk with the Lord? Like, this doesn't seem like it's healthy, what's going on here. Like, would you be willing to receive that? Or would you be like, who are you to tell me, Get, stay out of my business, right? That's not... That, that second part is not what we want, right? We want to have a culture in our church where we're like, you know, everybody has permission to come to me and say, hey, what about this? Like, I hope even we feel that, like, young people could come and ask us a hard question and, and that we would be willing to hear that, right? Um, I just finished um, the rule of St. Benedict, which is... Uh, very early church um, monastic rule, but one of the things I thought was really cool in there is he said, um, whenever there's a big decision to be made, everybody needs to get together in the whole monastery, and everybody needs to be allowed to talk, including the younger brothers, because very often the young see things that the old are missing. And I think that's something we should have as our attitude, too. So, are you open to this? This is part of how God refines us. And the healthy thing is that the Christian life, like Luther said in his very first thesis of the 95 Theses, the Christian life should be a life of repentance, where we're constantly being rebuked by the word from all different kinds of directions, from preaching, teaching, stuff we're listening to, people who are talking to us, and we're constantly repenting, right? Repenting sometimes multiple times a day of things that are like, oh man, that was not right. I need Jesus to help me. Forgive me. Help me, Lord, right? That's, that's a normal, healthy Christian life where we're just, we're growing. We're seeing our sin and we're turning from it. But sometimes a Christian or at least someone who claims to be a Christian can become stubbornly unrepentant about serious sin. And in this case, a trial becomes necessary. And the very, very moment I say the word trial, Many of us may be thinking to ourselves, oh no, what are you talking about? This sounds like the Inquisition. Um, this sounds like, you know, Salem witch trial kind of stuff. Like, this just sounds weird. What, like church courts? You know, this is just 
strange to most modern um, evangelical Christians. But it's right there in Scripture. Um, 1 Corinthians 5 is one of the most important passages here. And let's just turn, turn there with, with me. Um, this is where we get some of the most clear instruction about the fact that there are such things as church courts and process for discipline. I'm just going to read a good bit of 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. It's actually reported, this is 11.34 in the Pew Bibles. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, um, in other words, stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's likening the body to a, a leavened bread, and he's saying, get, get the old leaven out. In other words, immorality. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the great, greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Again, there's law court in the church. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. Multiple times in Deuteronomy, it talks about sin in Israel. What are they to do? They're to put that person to death. Someone who in Israel, for example, who persists in idolatry and encouraging others to idolatry, Deuteronomy 13 says, put that person to death. Remove, and then it says, purge the evil among you. Someone who's a rebellious son, who's just a drunkard and refuses to honor his parents, the parents are required to bring that person to the elders at the gates. They pass judgment, and the person is to be put to death. In the New Covenant, rather than someone being put to death by stoning, um, we have the equivalent, which is church discipline. When the church renders a judgment, purges the evil from among its midst. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law against the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Again, the assumption is we are, care we are to be rendering judgment in the church on these matters of life. So there is 
biblical precedent for this idea of a trial. It needs to be done in an orderly manner, allowing both sides to speak. So Proverbs 18, 17 is a great proverb on this. Um, the one who states his case first seems right until the other one comes and examines him, right? So how many times have you thought, oh, wow, that clearly must be the truth. And then you hear the other side and you realize, okay, this is more complicated <laughs> than I thought, right? So part of what uh, we need to do is allow both sides to speak. Um, give people who are accused of sin a chance to defend themselves. Well, actually, um, that's not the real story. Let me tell you the real story. Um, charges need to be established by two or more witnesses. This is not just sort of like one person accusing another and then, oh, okay, you're done. No, this needs to be established by two or more witnesses. And it also needs to be for a serious offense. And the way our Book of Church Order puts this um, in is just, it needs to be one that seriously disturbs the peace, purity, or unity of the church. And it needs to be something that's a matter of doctrine or life that goes against your membership vows. So, for example, let's say that somebody, uh, I don't know, uh, doesn't believe, um, I don't know, all, all of the tenets of Reformed theology. They're really struggling with predestination, right? Well, we believe that predestination is a clear teaching of Scripture. It's something we confess as a church. But that's not something that we would go to trial about, right? Now, imagine somebody says, I don't really believe the Bible anymore. Well, your first membership vow is, do you believe the Bible? Um, I don't really think the Trinity is a biblical idea. Okay, second membership vow is, <laughs> right? Um, that, that's, that's core stuff, right? Um, and sim- not just matters of doctrine, but also matters of life. And we should be slow to move to this step. Uh, Paul says, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Um, this final step of going to trial is when we've, we've tried every means possible to try to produce that repentance that is commensurate with a profession of faith, right? And we're trying to encourage them, like, hey, let's, let's go through these different scriptures. Hey, let's read, read this book together. Hey, let's, let's um, if you can't, you're not really hearing it from us, let's involve this other person, another good trusted biblical counselor or somebody, right? We're, we're doing everything we can. Because Jesus, after all, is the one who does not quench the smoldering wick, who does not break the bruised reed, right? Is it okay to be struggling as a Christian in the church? Is it okay to be weak in faith in the church? Yeah, it's okay, right? And, and that's where, like, you know, the Lord's Supper, it's for those, not just who are really strong in faith, but also for those who are struggling, who are doubting, right? Um, so we want to be patient with everybody. At the same time, if someone just still is stubbornly unrepentant, we need to, we need to purge the evil that is among us. And so if a person is found guilty after that process, that due process of trial, and they still don't repent, then the elders must pronounce censure. And there are five degrees, or yeah, four degrees of censure in our book of church order. And again, this is just trying to put together biblical principles. The first is admonition, which is both tender and solemn. And this, you know, again, is contingent on how is, what, what's the nature of the sin and what's the nature of the person we're dealing with. Higher than that is rebuke, which is a public matter. Um, 
where in 1 Timothy 5.20 it talks about, um, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And again, that's language of Deuteronomy. Um, why was it so important that in Israel they purged the evil from among them? So that everybody else wouldn't think that sin's no big deal. Right? You're purging the evil from among you, and what's one of the hoped-for results? So that all Israel would fear. Hey, sin's a big deal. Sin leads to death. This is not something to mess around with. Right? And so rebuke is more severe. And then suspension, where you are still considered a member, but you are not in good standing anymore, and you are not permitted to take the Lord's Supper and enjoy the other privileges of membership, for example, voting in the congregational meeting and things like that. Um, that's for somebody where um, the sin has become very severe, they're not repenting, and um, we're, we're not yet at the stage of actually formally removing them from the church. We're trying to give them time to see the seriousness of it. And we're saying, look, things are really, really bad for you right now. You're not, you're not able to take the supper, and we're hoping that this promotes repentance. And then what's happening? There, that censure, that level of censure, is going to be periodically reviewed, and it may come to a point where we need to move to the final stage where the person's still not repenting, they're still engaged in this heinous sin, and so we excommunicate. It is the last resort in the face of unrepentance, persistent unrepentance. It's for when someone claims to be a brother. Did you hear that in 1 Corinthians 5? He bears the name brother, and yet he's still engaged in this serious, serious sin. His life and his beliefs are saying otherwise. And so we say, they are purged now from among us. They're no longer to be recognized as a brother or a sister. It's a very serious thing. And there's a process. I hope you realize this is at the tail end of a long, long process, right? There's also times when people have to be removed without that full process. And we call this in our book erasure. But this is just recognizing there can be other circumstances. For example, we've had this has happened, where people will leave and they just refuse to communicate with us anymore. Even though they promised in their final membership vow, we will heed the church's discipline. They don't keep it. And they're like off the radar. They, they refuse to answer any calls, any messages, any letters. They no longer have anything more to do with us. After a time, we have to remove them from the roles. Or when they resign their membership, this has also happened, sadly. Or someone says, I no longer believe what the, the things I said I believed when I made those vows and I resigned my membership. Well, at that point, we erase them. We don't have to go through this whole trial. They're saying, coming as their own accuser, basically saying, I no longer believe this and I don't want to be a member of the church anymore. At that point, you know, we're sad and we try to reason with them, but if they're not, not going to, then we have to remove them by erasure. And what you need to understand is that both of these, both erasure and excommunication, are saying that the church can no longer recognize this person formally as a Christian. Is it possible that they still actually are? Yeah, I mean, the Lord knows, right? The Lord alone knows, right? But in terms of their life and their, the way they're conducting themselves, we can no longer say that they have a credible profession of faith. And we're urging them to repent, and this is going to be something I mentioned in just a moment here, but um, there's, there's supposed to be, there's a trajectory here. Like, we're not just saying, okay, it's over for you, and 
No more, no more grace, like the door is shut and you can't get back in. Not at all. And we'll talk about that in a second. But one, one thing I do need to say right away is that everybody in the church is subject to the church's discipline. Elders and pastors as well. That's part of the glory of being Presbyterian is that everybody is accountable to somebody. Right? So elders and pastors, we are accountable to each other. And also, I am accountable personally, individually to the presbytery. I am actually not a member of this church. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I'm a member of the Presbytery of Ohio. And they're the ones who have ordained me. And they're the ones who, if there's any problem with my teaching, have the right to discipline me. Um, or if there's something wrong with my life. Um, likewise, the decisions of our church collectively are under the review of the presbytery. We'll talk about this in a future class. So we're all accountable. We're all under discipline, and this is a good thing. And this is, I hope, one of the things you see from this. Like, you could be saying to yourself, like, man, this sounds really rough. Well, it's actually a really good thing for three reasons. First, it vindicates the honor of Christ. Think about how many people you've tried to, you know, talk to about the gospel, witness to, who have said, hey, um, I don't, I'm not interested in becoming a Christian at all. Because look at all those Christians over there who are hypocrites, who are so flagrantly living a life that contradicts what the Bible says. And that should grieve us, right? What discipline does is it defends the honor of Jesus. And it says, look, if you're not going to walk the Christian life, if you're not going to, to you know, be faithful to him, and you're going to engage in hypocrisy without re repentance, and there isn't that sense of like, wow, I've really sinned. I need Jesus's grace, right? Um, then, then we're not going to like pretend that that's okay, right? Um, rather, we're saying Jesus, he, he cares about truth. He cares about righteousness and hates sin. That's part of what we're saying. It also promotes the purity and reputation of the church. And both of those are both uh, very important ideas. So, Purity is saying, like, look, um, we don't want um, people in our midst who are claiming the name Christian, not living it, and polluting everybody else and thinking these are okay. <laughs> Thanks. Right? Um, we've all experienced this, right? Where um, maybe with, with kids or whatever, one kid starts acting out, and if we don't, we don't deal with that, then it starts to spread, and the others start doing the same thing because they're like, hey, he's getting away with it, right? Um, and, of course, the reputation of the church as well. But here's the, the biggest hope that we hope for from discipline, that the offender would be reclaimed. And this is part of the beauty, I think, of church discipline, is the, the grace of it. There is never a time where you can sin so bad that there's no hope for you anymore. Isn't that awesome? I mean, like Peter, he denied Jesus. Was he restored? Yes, glory, right? There's always grace. Um, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, that sounds mean. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's always the hope in church discipline is that someone will realize, man, what have I been doing? Like that they would wake up finally and realize, I have totally, totally not been living for my Lord. I have forgotten my first love. Look at this. I'm not even allowed to take the Lord's Supper anymore. 
right? We hope that that would lead to that awakening. And um, this wonderful little book, um, Is It Loving to Practice Church Discipline? Uh, Jonathan Lehman, he writes this in there. I have seen through church discipline, think of this, I have seen marriages restored, lies confessed, addictions abandoned, the gospel re-embraced, and love rescued through church discipline. That sounds really good, right? That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're praying for. And there's a process of restoration. Jesus gives it to us. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And then he goes on to say, the next verse, if he does this seven times a day, (laughs) forgive him every time. So what is needed? Not that you become perfect all of a sudden, but that you repent. Say, that was wrong what I did. I really want to live for Jesus now. I acknowledge that all those excuses I was making, none of them are right. And I want to really start living for him. And here's how I'm going to start living for him. And it will require a public fix. It will require the person who has been publicly put out to publicly come and say, and this is obviously a very hard thing to do, brothers and sisters, I sinned. And I need your grace. I need the grace of Jesus. And what will happen in that day? Not shame. It will not be, oh, shame, shame, shame. No, it will be forgiveness and love publicly pronounced by the church. And as it says about the prodigal son, they began to celebrate. Right. We will be, you know, the, the angels in heaven are rejoicing over the one who comes back, right? We get to participate in that on that beautiful day. Um, so I have one more thing here. Is the church has been really loving, but let me just pause here for questions. Anybody have any questions about what I've been saying? Yeah, Anna? Right, right. Yeah. Okay, great question. So um, the initial statement you made is just like the, the elders of the church are the ones who pronounce people who are in, you know, receiving their profession of faith, giving them baptism in the Lord's Supper, and then also those who pronounce those who are out. And that's the idea of the keys of the kingdom. Um, which are given to the whole church, but wielded by those who are the stewards of the kingdom, right? Um, and what you're asking is, okay, we can do that for those who come to us, who are members and in our midst, right? But um, what about, like, people out there, like false teachers? Um, are we allowed to pronounce about them in any kind of formal way? And it's a really great question. I mean, I think, <clears throat> as I'm just sort of processing your question, I, th- I think that, like, it's actually the duty of the minister to warn the people about false teaching, right? Um, beware the wolves in sheep's clothing, right? And so part of my responsibility when I'm opening the word to you all is to say, hey, so-and-so prominent Christian, pers- Christian person is saying this, right? The health and wealth stuff that you just mentioned, or you know, um, there are evangelical Christians who don't believe in hell, right? And so occasionally as the topics arise, 
I am clearly demarcating this is out of bounds. This is heinously wrong, right? Um, and so in that way, in an authoritative capacity, we are, you know, saying don't listen to those false teachers. Um, but unless that person were to come and seek membership in our church, very unlikely situation, <laughs> I don't know that we would be in a position to like say, now that person is totally not a Christian. or It's just not, it's not really something that's before us, I think. Um, but yeah, good question. I have to think a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great point, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so there's a category in our book for what's called a church of like faith and practice. And this is somebody, this is a church that would um, have a profession or a confession of faith that would be very close to, if not the same as, the Westminster Standard. So like the PCA would be a church of like faith and practice. Um, our brother David Myron is a member of the URC, United Reformed Church, which has the three forms of unity that he taught you about this summer, right? That would be a church of like faith and practice where it's reformed and they, they practice infant baptism and things that would make it so that it's very simple for us when somebody says, hey, I'm moved to this new place and I'm going to be joining this URC church. It's a church of like faith and practice. It's very easy for us to write a letter of transfer saying, hey, we entrust this person into your care. Um, However, there are other churches that are not those of like faith and practice. Um, and the book allows, now we're getting kind of into the weeds a little bit here, but um, uh, it could be, well, let me just try to s distill this. Uh, essentially, right, we recognize that there can be true churches that disagree with Reformed theology and everything. Um, and we can acknowledge there are true Christians outside of the Reformed fold, of course, right? Um, there can even be people who are true Christians who aren't a member of any church, right? We, we've talked about this as well. Um, what am I trying to say? I don't know. Um, I'm so sorry, brother. I'm totally whiffing on this. <laughs> yeah. 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 We told them, hey, this is, we're, we're, you're a member of this, this person's a member in good standing of this church. It could be could be dangerous for their souls if they went to that church. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I saw your hand first, Todd. Yeah.
<laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That's good. Right. Yeah. That's a great. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great point. And and yeah, that that sort of disputative kind of judging other people attitude is something we're not seeking to cultivate. La last question, we should close it out. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right, yeah, Com condemning teachings, not teachers, in the sense of, like, that person's personal standing before Christ, don't know the guy, right? Um, yeah, and is this all loving? I hope you'll read the final part just to say, look, love is about not what feels good, but it's about truth. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Can church discipline sometimes not be loving and abusive? Yes, sadly, and that's something we all need to be careful of. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. We're all subject to sin and its snares. So we all need humility. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, your zeal for truth, your zeal for your church. You're such a gracious God. And you're also a God who is deeply committed to holiness. And Lord, we pray that this church would be faithful with this charge of being faithful, faithfully committed to holiness and to truth. And that, Lord, we would go about this in a gracious way, understanding that all of us are subject to sin's snares. All of us, Lord, struggle with the sin that clings so closely, that entangles. And so, Lord, we all need to restore each other with a spirit of gentleness. And we do pray you would protect this church, protect each member from hardness of heart, from unteachability. Protect us all, Lord, when we are confronted on our sin. Give us that grace of humility and of teachability and a willingness to change. And we pray that you would bring about true spiritual life and thriving here and protect us. We pray it in Jesus' name.